Let us pray. Oh God, how are you speaking among us and how are you calling us to be your people in this day and in this time? Amen. For the past few weeks now, we've been reading in Luke's gospel. Uh, We haven't been going from verse to verse to verse to verse. We've kind of been skipping from one place to the next. So I thought I would kind of catch us up from what happened last week to where we are today. Last week, if you were here, um, Jesus calls Peter to come and to be catchers of people. And it said that Peter and some of the others, they, they left everything and they went and followed Jesus. And then from after that until today, they, uh, this small group starts traveling with Jesus. A few more get added along the way. Jesus is doing a lot of healing, a lot of teaching, even though we don't really read much about specific things Jesus is teaching. And he also has, uh, for the first time, begins to aggravate some of the religious leaders. And that will get worse over time. And then shortly before our reading today, Jesus has gone up onto the mountain to pray. He comes back down from the mountain and he chooses 12 people that's going to be his inner circle of followers. He calls them the apostles. And those 12 people will be going with him to the very end. And then right before our reading today, it says that Jesus went with the twelve and and stood in what what Luke calls a level place. And there he began to heal people and to teach people on this level place. And then we get to our text today. This text that David read is is the first really of, of any kind of extended teaching that Jesus has in the book of Luke. And actually, the whole conversation of of the teaching in this one section is the longest in all of Luke. Some of this reading that uh, we had today might be familiar to you. Uh, Probably, though, not as familiar as familiar as the more uh, well-known version, which is in Matthew. In Matthew, they call it the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain, on the level place. These geographical differences may um, have some meaning for us. Some scholars say that anyway. The Sermon on the Mount, perhaps uh, Matthew speaks of Jesus speaking from the mount because the mountain in Scripture was a place of holiness, of the divine, and therefore the Sermon on the Mount is a place where the teachings are coming from God Himself. But Maybe for Luke, the the notion of of, Jesus coming and speaking on a level plain Um, says something different. In the Old Testament, very often the notion of a level ground speaks of things like um, it's associated with with corpses and disgrace and suffering and hunger and mourning. And perhaps Luke has Jesus speaking on a level place to emphasize the brokenness, the hardness, the rejection that comes in life. And he's saying that to people who are broken and who are rejected. And even as he says that, he's going to offer up a brand new world for these folks. Besides that, there's some other differences besides this geographical notion between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Mount's a lot longer. The part that we read today in in Matthew, it's called the Beatitudes. There's nine of them, but Luke only has four of them. But in Luke, unlike in Matthew, for each blessing that Matthew or that Luke speaks of there's a corresponding woe 
There's four blessings and four woes. And if you put those together, you'll see what Jesus is doing. For instance, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then on the other side, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Versus woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Versus woe to you who are laughing now, because you will mourn and weep. And blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and revile you and defame you on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely as your, your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Verses, woe to you when all speak well of you. For that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This teaching of Jesus expresses God's reversal of how things are and how things are going to be. It's a reversal because everything that, that Luke lifts up as a blessing is anything but a blessing. And when Jesus speaks of those who live in woe, it's anything but a woe. It was that way in Jesus' day. It's that way our day to too, today too. And in Jesus' day, and I've said this before, things were very much along a very strict hierarchical system. It's like a pyramid. At the very top of the pyramid was Caesar, the emperor. Caesar, who was known as the Son of God. And from the Son of God, Caesar, came all the blessings of life. They all originated in Caesar and they all flowed out from Caesar. And Caesar was, was the great patron and below Caesar in the next group of people would have been his patrons, I mean his clients. Clients were people who would receive blessings from Caesar and then in return the clients would, would return favor to Caesar as well. Perhaps that you know, might be uh, protection, that might be loyalty, that might be military assistance when needed. And then below this next level was another level, and I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not confusing you too much. You got the patron on top to the clients, and then these clients become patrons to those below them, and on down it goes. And the farther down you go, the blessings that get shared become less and less. But what is demanded going back up becomes more and more. And so finally at the very bottom of the pyramid, at the very bottom of the scale of life, you had the very poor who got very little, if any kind of blessing from those above, but instead bore the burden of providing back up all the blessings through the oppressive taxes that they had to pay. Those on top were the blessed. Those on the bottom lived in great woe. That's how things were then, and that's how things are today. I just finished up a book this past week by Diana Butler Bass. It's called Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. In one section, she talks about the Beatitudes in Matthew, but it also relates to us. In Luke, says the Beatitudes can be confusing. Few give thanks for poverty or hunger or grief as Jesus does. 
Most contemporary people have a very different idea of what makes for a blessed life. Blessed are the rich, for they own the best stuff. Blessed are the sexy and glamorous, because everyone desires them. Blessed are the powerful, for they shall control the kingdoms of the earth. Blessed are those who get everything they ever wanted. They alone will be satisfied. Blessed are the famous, for their reward is eternal life. Money and beauty, power, achievement, and fame. We hold those things in esteem because those are the blessed. And yet what we read today turns all of that upside down. Sorry, I lost my place. got so wrapped up in my book there. Those who are considered blessed, they receive words of woe. Those whose lives have been filled with woe, they receive the blessing. Now, if we consider our own lives, whether we are blessed or whether we live in woe, I'd say all of us have had times in life where we have experienced woe in some form, in some sort of fashion, but overall, we probably would need to conclude that we are very much among the blessed, considering where we live and how we live and what we look like. We are among the blessed. So therefore, if we are on the blessed scale, what are we to do with these words of Jesus today? Well, one thing the church has done and has tried to do very well is to just ignore all of this that Jesus is saying. And if not ignore it, then try to soften what Jesus is saying here. We want to say that Jesus is talking about spiritual things. About being poor in spirit and such like that. Now Matthew, we can kind of get away with some of that because Matthew says poor in spirit. And Matthew says hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But Luke will have none of that. He's a lot more terse in how he says it. Blessed are the poor, period, says Luke. And that word for poor here in the Greek is patoichi. It's a Greek word. And it speaks of those who are destitute, literally those who crouch and beg. Blessed are the hungry, Luke says, period. You see, this text in Luke won't allow us to try to explain away who is blessed here. So what are we to do with this text? Are we to wallow in guilt and feel guilty that we are blessed? And that we're not among the poor and the hungry and such? Are we to avoid being happy because we're not poor and hungry? I don't think so because I don't think God's intention is for us to be people who live lives of guilt and sadness. And I certainly don't think we're called to romanticize poverty and to lift up those who are poor as being people who really are having the good life. And even just saying the notion that the poor are living the good life sounds really stupid, doesn't it? Now here's some thoughts that I have on how I think Jesus might intend for us to read and react to this text. For one thing, I think we need to recognize that God intends 
for life to be the way that Jesus is saying here today. It's not about life when we go to heaven, but it's life in the right here and now of life. And also this, for those of us who live on the blessed side of things right now, I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize our blessedness and that we are blessed and to recognize the source of our blessing, that it comes from God. Although, of course, for all of us, the more we are blessed, the greater becomes the temptation to say, I am the author and the maker of my blessings, instead of recognizing that God is the author of all of our blessings. In other words, we're called to an awareness of our blessings and our radical dependence on God. But we can't stop there. Not only do we recognize that we're blessed and that these blessings come from God, we can't stop with that. We can't consider those who are not like us, who are not rich, who are not full, who are not laughing, and who are not highly spoken of, we can't consider those ones and then say, oh, that's not my concern. We can't say that because these folks matter to God, that really they don't have to matter to me, because if they do matter to God, if they are God's concern, then therefore they are our concern. And in order for us to concern ourselves with those who are poor and hungry and weeping and hated and excluded and reviled, we have to put ourselves into their lives. And we don't do that by making ourselves apart from them, but we're called to be fully plugged into life with them. They are not an it. Another thing I read this week, it's from a newspaper I get called Hospitality. And there's a sermon in here, I want to read the first part of it. It's called, When a Person is an It, by a lady named Murphy Davis. She writes this, The great former slave abolitionist journalist leader, Frederick Douglass, an African American man, traveled all over the United States and England before the Civil War, speaking eloquently, eloquently to large audiences about slavery and the abolitionist cause. He often told his audience about how the Constitution of the United States defined the African slave as a thing, not a human being, not a man or woman or child, but a thing. And then he would step back from the podium fix his eyes on the people before him, draw up his considerable frame, fling his arms out wide and thunder, Behold the thing. I cannot imagine, but that it left many of those who heard him very shaken. The very idea that this distinguished, handsome, articulate man, a formidable human being, was described as a thing, an object to be purchased, a piece of property, but he worked and moved around and beaten and used as a breeder and killed or sold at will or on a whim? What made the difference for many who attended his lectures was that they encountered a living, breathing human being who had been a slave. They heard him, they saw him, they heard his story, and they were moved to understand that he was not a thing. 
He was a person to whom they could relate and whom they could even admire. When the members of his audience had no personal experience of knowing those of African descent who were slaves, they could perhaps dismiss them to the way others spoke of them. Others spoke of them as commodities and possessions and my house inward or my field inward. If people at all, the slaves were people without feelings or thoughts of their own. But here standing before them was this man, this tall, striking in appearance, self-educated and brilliant man. No more could the audience dismiss him as anything less than a full human being like themselves. What made the difference is they heard him, they saw him, they heard his story, and they were moved to see that he was a person. I think Jesus lifts up this first of his teachings to remind us who are blessed now that we are being called by God to help fulfill what God intends for our world right now. We are called to be with those who are blessed right now, to hear them, to see them, and to hear their story right now. And we are to do that because that is where Jesus is at. We might say that this teaching today is God's dream for our world. But it's a dream that God is bringing about and God will be bringing about. I'd like to read one more piece that I think we have onto the screen. It's written by Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa. He wrote this in one of his books, and it's called I Have a Dream. I have a dream, God says. Please help me to realize it. It is a dream of a world whose ugliness and squalor and poverty, its war and hostility, its greed and harsh competitiveness, its alienation and disharmony are changed into their glorious counterparts, where there will be more laughter, joy, and peace, where there will be justice and goodness and compassion and love and caring and sharing. I have a dream that swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that my children will know that they are members of one family, the human family, God's family, my family. We're a little late this morning, but I'm going to have a sit for a moment anyway. We who are rich and full and well spoken of, think of someone or some group who are poor, hungry, who are weeping, who are hated and excluded, reviled and defamed. Think of someone, think of some group. How might God be calling you to participate in a hands-on way as equals with this person or among this group? And not only ourselves as individuals, how might God be calling this church into those lives? Let's think on that a moment.
May God's dream be done. Amen.